From New York, this is Democracy Now! We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. Jordanian King Abdullah meets with President Biden at the White House and calls for a ceasefire in Gaza as Israel continues to threaten to invade Rafah, where over a million Palestinians have sought refuge. We'll speak to a doctor who's just left Gaza. Then climate scientist Michael Mann. A jury has awarded him a million dollars after he sued two right-wing critics for defamation. I hope that this draws a line in the sand. It's one thing to disagree with scientific findings, but it's something else entirely to engage in bad faith, ideologically driven uh, attacks on scientists that misrepresent their work, that make false allegations uh, against them um, simply to serve some political agenda. But first, could Indonesia be headed back to military rule? A notorious former general who's been implicated in mass killings in East Timor, Papua and Aceh could win Wednesday's election after getting the backing of the Indonesian government, despite his history of staging multiple coups. We'll speak with longtime investigative journalist Alan Nairn in Jakarta. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. International pressures mounting against Israel's planned ground invasion of Rafah, which now hosts more than a million displaced Gazans who were once told the southern area was a safe zone. President Biden spoke Monday after meeting with Jordan's King Abdullah at the White House. The king and I also discussed the situation in Rafah. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah, the, the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Biden quickly corrected himself after describing Israel's operation in Rafah as, quote, our operation. Biden also said his administration's working on a six-week ceasefire in Gaza. CIA Director William Burns is in Cairo for more truce talks. Despite Biden's comments, he's refused to impose any conditions on billions of dollars the U.S. continues to send to Israel. This is National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby being questioned by a reporter. Has the president ever threatened to strip military assistance from Israel if they move ahead with a Rafa operation that does not take into consequence the, what happens with civilians? We're going to continue to support Israel. They have a right to defend themselves against Hamas, and we're going to continue to make sure they have the tools and the capabilities to do that. Israeli airstrikes in Rafah already killed at least 100 people overnight into Monday, as the IDF carried out a rescue operation to free two Israeli-Argentine hostages. This is a young Palestinian girl injured and lost her father in the Israeli strikes. We were in the tent, me and all my family, when the bullets came at us. My father went to see what's happening and said there were strikes, and a strike happened while he was talking. We all fled. 
My father was martyred. While in the car, he kept saying, I bear witness that there is one God, and he died. Amnesty International says Rafah's population has seen a five-fold increase since the Israeli assault started on October 7th. In a new report, Amnesty's calling for a war crimes investigation into Israeli strikes in Rafah in December and January that killed nearly 100 civilians, almost half of them children. This comes as Palestinian health officials say Israeli forces have killed over 12,300 children in the Gaza Strip in just over four months. Meanwhile, Israeli violence in the occupied West Bank continues to intensify. At least 22 people, including a child, were arrested in overnight raids in Janine and other areas. There have been over 7,000 arrests in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. Detained Palestinians say they're being violently attacked in prison. Meanwhile, a group of U.N. special rapporteurs says Israel's undercover killings of three Palestinian men at the Ibn Sina hospital in Janine last month may amount to extrajudicial killings and violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law. The U.N. experts said, quote, by disguising themselves as seemingly harmless, protected medical personnel and civilians, the Israeli forces also prima facie committed the war crime of per- Perfidy, unquote. Perfidy describes a deception involving an abuse of good faith. Protesters took to the streets around the United States Monday as fear mounts over an all-out attack in Rafah. Rallies took place outside the White House in Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles and other major cities. Around 20 activists with Sunrise Movement were arrested as they occupied Biden's Wilmington, Delaware campaign headquarters, warning he's at risk of losing millions of youth votes in November. Here in New York, protesters blocked cars around Grand Central. Activists led by Jew Jewish American groups rallied outside Senator Chuck Schumer's office. Earlier in the day, protesters gathered for an emergency protest at Union Square, led by the group Within Our Lifetime. Democracy Now! is there. My name is Nardine Keswani. We cannot sit by idly and watch our people be massacred, and we will do whatever it takes to stop it. We will continue to protest. They shut down our Instagram page. The police are, are starting to be more brutal, more um, horrific with their arrests and attacks on the movement to free Palestine in an effort to shut us down, because public opinion shows, these protests shows, that the people of New York City and the people of the United States stand with Palestine. The U.S. Senate passed a $95 billion military funding package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan in the pre-dawn hours this morning. But the bill's fate remains unclear after House Speaker Mike Johnson dismissed the measure over its failure to include hardline immigration restrictions. This comes after Johnson and other Republicans rejected an earlier version of the bill, which did contain the border crackdown they demanded. Johnson has told Republican Congress members he will call a House vote on a standalone funding bill for Israel. 
Donald Trump has asked the Supreme Court to intervene and halt a D.C. appeals court ruling that rejected Trump's claims of total immunity for his actions following his 2020 election loss. Special counsel Jack Smith has charged Trump on four counts over his efforts to overturn the election. Two lower courts have already rejected Trump's presidential immunity argument. Trump's lawyers are also asking the D.C. court to reconsider his claim with its full panel of judges. In related news, the judge overseeing Georgia's election subversion case against Donald Trump said Monday District Attorney Fannie Willis could be disqualified over her past romantic relationship with the lead prosecutor in the case if she benefited financially. A hearing on the matter has been scheduled for Thursday. In India, Police fired tear gas at thousands of farmers marching toward New Delhi, protesting for better working protections and to be paid a higher value for their crops. Police sealed several entry points into New Delhi with barricades of barbed wire, cement blocks and spikes. Some of the protesters were arrested. This is a leader with the Punjab Farmers Union. See how peacefully the farmers are marching, yet the police are dropping tear gas shells from drones hovering in the sky. In Trinidad and Tobago, officials declared a national emergency Sunday after a massive oil spill caused by an overturned vessel blackened several miles of Tobago's southern shores, covering beaches with thick oil. It's still unclear how much oil has spilled, while the government has yet to identify the owner of the largely submerged vessel found off the coast last week. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, protests broke out Monday near U.N. offices and Western embassies in the capital, Kinshasa, as anger mounts over the worsening violence and humanitarian crisis in eastern Congo. Demonstrators burned U.S. and other flags denouncing Western nations' support of Rwanda, which is accused of backing the M23 militia and their complicity in the conflict. We are claiming our rights. France and the United States are fostering the war in the eastern DRC by supporting the rebellion. A country like Rwanda cannot fight against the Democratic Republic of Congo. We are marching. We are not breaking or destroying people's property. But the head of the police is sending his officers to chase us away. This comes as thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes as M23 advanced toward Goma, a key city in eastern Congo. And back here in New York, voters in Long Island and a small section of Queens are casting ballots today to fill the open seat left by disgraced Republican Congress member George Santos. The U.S. House voted to expel Santos in December over campaign finance violations and his many lies about his personal and work history. On the ballot is former Democratic Congress member Tom Suozzi, who previously held the seat and is pitching himself as a centrist. The Republican candidate is Mazi Pillip, a Nassau County legislator who's actually a registered Democrat. She was born in Ethiopia and airlifted to Israel as part of Operation Solomon, where she fought in the Israeli military before moving to the U.S. Republicans control 219 seats in the U.S. House compared to 212 for Democrats. Four House seats are currently vacant. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Indonesia, the scene of two of the 20th century's epic slaughters may be on the verge of a return to army rule at the hands of its most notorious general. 
General Proboa Subianto, a longtime U.S. protege implicated in the country's massacres, once mused about becoming a fascist dictator and is now a serious threat to assume the presidency. Those are the opening two paragraphs of a new article in The Intercept by the award-winning journalist Alan Nairn, who spent decades covering Indonesia and the country it occupied for quarter of a century, East Timor. Alan is joining us now from Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, ahead of Wednesday's election in Indonesia. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Alan. Why don't you start off by just laying out the scene of what's about to happen tomorrow and who exactly Prabowo is? Well, General Prabowo uh, is the most notorious massacred general uh, in Indonesia, and he's also the general who was closest to the U.S. as he was carrying out his uh, mass killings, abductions of activists, and uh, systematic uh, tortures. He was also the son-in-law of the former uh, dictator of Indonesia, uh, General Suharto. Prabowo described himself to me as the uh, American's fair-haired boy. Uh, he mused about becoming a fascist uh, dictator. He told me Indonesia is not ready for democracy. And he described in detail how he received training from the U.S. at Fort Benning and Fort Bragg. Uh, how, uh, when in 1998, Suharto was falling, uh, and he, Prabowo, was in the process of uh, kidnapping activists, he was in regular uh, consultation with the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. In fact, Prabowo told me that he reported uh, to the U.S. DIA at least uh, once a week. Uh, he also described how, under a Pentagon program known as JSET, Joint Combined Exchange and Training, uh, he, General Prabowo, brought fully armed troops uh, into, into Indonesia uh, on at least uh, 41 occasions. And Pentagon documents back up Prabowo's account. According to the general and those Pentagon uh, documents, while the uh, U.S. troops were in Indonesia, after, as the Pentagon put it, Prabowo opened the door to them, they uh, started doing reconnaissance and making plans, uh, contingency plans, for a possible future U.S. invasion uh, of Indonesia, as Prabowo put it to me, for the invasion uh, contingency. So these armed U.S. troops, which, which Prabowo brought in to uh, Java and Sumatra and other places uh, in Indonesia, were uh, laying the groundwork for a future U.S. invasion if the U.S. chose to do that. This is particularly interesting since Prabowo styles himself, as he's running for president now, as a nationalist. And he attacks anyone who opposes him as an Antek Asing, a foreign uh, lackey, when in fact he is the one uh, who was closest to the U.S., who was helping the U.S. plan for an invasion, and who in more recent years helped to kill a workers' rights lawsuit against Freeport McMoran, uh, the American mining giant which is stripping uh, the hills and forests of de facto occupied uh, West Papua. Uh, and he is the general, most importantly, who uh, led many of the massacres in East Timor after the Indonesian army uh, invaded uh, with the green light from President Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger. 
In one case, uh, in the uh, village of uh, Caraz, uh, Proboo uh, uh, and his forces killed uh, hundreds of uh, fleeing uh, civilians. Uh, he later was involved in other massacres and directing assassinations of political activists uh, in Aceh uh, and uh, West Papua. And now he may be on the verge of assuming the presidency. He's tried for many years to seize power. He's tried multiple coup attempts. But this time he has the backing of the incumbent government, the incumbent civilian president, Joko Widodo, uh, Jokowi, and the state apparatus is being put behind General Prabowo. Uh, the army and police are going out and intimidating poor people uh, at the neighborhood level, telling them that if they don't vote for Prabowo, uh, the authorities will know about it and they'll be in trouble. People are being threatened with having their poor people are being threatened with having their government rations of rice and cooking oil cut off if they don't uh, vote for Prabowo. Uh, academics who recently spoke out against uh, this use of state power to elect, to push this general into office are now being uh, visited and intimidated uh, by the uh, by the police. And last Wednesday, there was a meeting. Of, uh, that included army generals and intelligence officials, where they discussed uh, a plan to, if necessary, do voter fraud to push uh, General Prabowo over the 50 percent threshold uh, he will need in order to win uh, in tomorrow's uh, election. It's a three-candidate election, and if he gets over the 50 percent threshold and gets a sufficient number of votes in the provinces outside uh, Java, he will automatically become the president-elect. And the plan that was discussed at that meeting among those senior military and intelligence officials uh, was that there was an existing plan to do fraud, if necessary, to push the general over that threshold and impose him on Indonesia as their new president, uh, really their new ruler. Alan, uh, Alan, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the incumbent president, Joko Widodo, is backing Prabowo. How do you explain this change since he defeated the general in two previous elections and once talked yes. about actually holding him for, on trial for war crimes? Right. It's, it's a very important question, and it has a lot of uh, Indonesians outrage. When uh, Jokowi defeated Prabowo the first time around in 2014, he, the incumbent president, the civilian Jokowi, had the support of many massacre survivors and human rights activists. And they did uh, internally, the Jokowi government did talk about putting General Prabowo and other generals like General Wiranto and General Hendro Priono on trial for war crimes. I've been publicly calling for that for years and also calling for their U.S. sponsors to be tried for war crimes. And in fact, in the early years of the Jokowi administration, I met with some of his advisors in the palace and discussed this with them. And what they kept saying was, yes, yes, but it, it will take time. This is uh, very uh, dangerous. We have to go slowly. But they said that that was the direction they were moving in. However, they never got there. They never even attempted to stage the trials. And then in 2019, after uh, Jokowi defeated General Prabowo for the second time, Prabowo staged the latest of his many coup attempts by backing uh, street riots that involved uh, mass looting and burning uh, in Jakarta. And it was at that point that President Jokowi said enough. He couldn't take it uh, anymore. And according to intermediaries from both sides, from both the Prabowo and the Jokowi side, 
Jokowi then decided to bring Prabowo into the tent in the hope that if he did that, if he brought him inside the government, that would put an end to the coup threats uh, and, and the incited street riots. And in fact, it did. He brought Prabowo in. He made him minister uh, of uh, defense. And the two then grew close. Their interests coincided. Uh, Jokowi, the president, uh, uh, became uh, increasingly wealthy. Prabowo backed the Indonesian uh, military policy of uh, killing civilians in, uh, in de facto occupied West Papua, where there is strong sentiment uh, for uh, independence. And this time around, when this next round of elections uh, was coming up, the incumbent civilian president, Jokowi, decided he wanted to, try, wanted to try to extend his own term, even though there's a two-term limit, as in the United States. He looked into options for maybe getting a third uh, term or maybe postponing the elections, but he wasn't able to pull those off. So he made a deal with General Perboa, with this massacre general, who was responsible for the slaughter of thousands and thousands of civilians across Indonesia and in occupied East Timor. President Jokowi made a deal to back him and use the state apparatus to help install him as president. And Jokowi lent his own son, uh, Gibran, to General Prabowo as his vice presidential running mate. And he did that even though the son of the president is too young to be vice president under Indonesian law. Uh, there's an age limit. He's only 36. The, you have to be a minimum age of 40. Uh, but he strong-armed that through the Supreme Court, where the president's uh, brother-in-law was the chief justice. He strong-armed it through the Electoral uh, Commission. Official state bodies have already ruled that those two actions were unethical, but it doesn't matter. The current ticket is General Prabowo, the massacre general, and Gibran, the president's underage son. And the whole state apparatus is being uh, mobilized on the one hand to intimidate and uh, threaten uh, the poor uh, with uh, trouble and the cutoff of their food and their cooking oil if they don't vote uh, for Prabowo. And on the other hand, uh, mounting uh, uh, a very sophisticated, very disgusting uh, public relations campaign, which portrays this notorial, notorious general as a gamoy, a fat, adorable uh, cartoon character who in videos and in ads uh, can, can be seen uh, dancing. And to people who are not familiar with the history of the, the massacres, two of the worst slaughters of the 20th uh, century, the U.S.-backed massacre when the army first seized power in 65 of anywhere from 400,000 to a million civilians, and then the murder of a third of the population by the invading Indonesian army in Timor with U.S. weapons and, and backing, and not familiar with Prabowo's role in that slaughter in Timor and elsewhere, uh, to those people, because, you know, these matters are not discussed in the schools or in the state, uh, or in the state media, uh, the ads have some uh, impact, and that combined with the intimidation makes him a strong threat to take power in the election. Well, well, Alan, specifically, uh, you mentioned how Prabowo has has sought to rebrand himself. Uh, but what of the youth of uh, Indonesia who now make up 52 percent of the electorate, those under 40? How, how have they been suckered into uh, this uh, 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 this narrative? I don't hear anything. 
Uh, we're going to have to go to a break, Juan, because it looks like the IFB dropped uh, for Alan. Uh, we're going to then come back to speak with him. Alan Aaron, longtime investigative journalist who's been covering Indonesia for decades. He's speaking to us from Jakarta, Indonesia. He's written a piece in The Intercept headlined, Indonesia's state apparatus is preparing to throw election to a notorious massacre general. We'll be back with him in a minute. Lado Negro. They signed on to Artists for Ceasefire. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we continue our conversation with longtime investigative journalist Alan Nairn, who's covered Indonesia and Indonesian-occupied East Timor for decades. Uh, his piece in The Intercept, Indonesia State Apparatus is Preparing to Throw Election to a Notorious Massacre General. Juan? Yes, uh, Alan, before we lost you, I was uh, asking you, you had mentioned the uh, Prabowo's uh, attempts to rebrand himself. And I asked about the, the, the young voters of, of Indonesia who make up about 52 percent of the electorate. How have they bought into this narrative? And also, what does it say about a uh, democratic elections uh, that uh, a general with this kind of record uh, is, is likely to be uh, uh, to uh, be victorious in an election? Well, we don't yet know if uh, he's likely, but he has, he's a strong threat uh, to, to win because the, uh, the muscle of the state apparatus uh, is uh, behind him. Part of the reason uh, they, to some extent, can get away with that, because textbooks and the press are not honest about how uh, the army uh, originally came uh, to power. With the U.S.-backed slaughter in 1965 uh, of anywhere to four, of 400,000 to a million civilians, and then the invasion of uh, East Timor with, uh, with U.S. green light and weapons where they killed a third of the population, which was the most intensive proportional slaughter since the Nazis. And they're definitely not uh, f familiar with uh, General Perboa's role uh, in uh, Timor and in the Aceh assassinations and in terrorizing civilian population. Uh, in West Papua. And it's a two-pronged approach uh, that they're using, uh, basically uh, pressuring and coercing uh, the poor uh, with threats to their well-being, because many poor people know they live at the mercy of what's called the apparat, uh, the army and the police, and threats to their, uh, their food, uh, and then 
for the middle uh, and upper classes, and especially the young people, this PR campaign that uh, portrays the general as uh, a cuddly, uh, a, a cuddly cartoon uh, character. Uh, and none of it would be possible without uh, the backing of the incumbent civilian president, who basically bowed to Prabowo in the army uh, after Prabowo's 2019 uh, ultimate uh, uh, coup attempt. So by violence, uh, Prabowo brought himself inside the government, and now that government uh, is preparing to attempt, if necessary through fraud, to install him and give him the ultimate power. And he's talking about modifying the way the presidency works, uh, returning to an older draft of the state constitution, which could make him a virtual dictator uh, if he wants to be. Uh, Alan, uh, before we wrap up, a couple quick questions. Um, Prabowo is the former son-in-law of the longtime authoritarian leader uh, Suharto, responsible for Indonesia invading East Timor. You and I survived the 1991 massacre there, where Indonesian soldiers, armed, trained and financed by the United States, opened fire on defenseless Timorese, killing more than 270 of them. They beat you up, uh, fracturing your skull. Talk about how Prabowo's involvement in Timor, killings in Indonesia as well, um, and then his supporting of coups uh, led him to where he is today. I was amazed that he was willing to grant you an interview years ago where he talked about becoming a fascist dictator, um, and where he stands on everything from ISIS to what's happening today in Gaza. After all, Indonesia has the largest Muslim uh, uh, population in the world. Uh, yes, well, I, I met with him uh, twice uh, in 2001, and uh, I actually I was meeting with him because I was investigating two uh, particular murders of, of civilians, and I wanted to find out what he knew about them. And I think possibly he enjoyed speaking to an adversary. But regarding the Santa Cruz massacre in Timor that we survived, Prabowo said to me that was an imbecilic operation. Uh, and he objected to it, not because of the, the hundreds of Timorese the army slaughtered, but because they did it in front of us. And because they did it in front of us and we survived and were able to report it to the outside world and other foreign witnesses like Max Stahl were able to, to do the same, uh, that in, we were able to get the U.S. Congress to, over time through grassroots action in the United States, uh, cut off uh, for a while the U.S. Uh, arms supply to Suharto, which helped to lead to Suharto's downfall, uh, according to Suharto's former security chief, Admiral Sudomo. So Suharto said that was imbecilic. You don't, he said, you don't do it in front of uh, outside witnesses. You do a massacre in an isolated rural village where no one uh, will, ever, uh, will, will ever know about it. Um, and Proboo uh, was able to stage his uh, series of coup attempts uh, over the years, in part uh, because uh, he, was, he had the support of the Indonesian army, which was in turn backed by the United States. He, in particular, uh, was the Americans' favorite. He described him described himself as the American's fair-haired boy, and he had the support of the uh, Indonesian uh, oligarchy uh, as well, uh, and he certainly has their backing uh, in this election. 
And with regard to uh, Israel, Proboa, uh, after he became defense minister, made a special effort to draw Indonesia closer to Israel. The two countries do not have uh, diplomatic relations. The Indonesian population now is outraged uh, by uh, the slaughter, the genocide that Israel is conducting in uh, Gaza. But Proboa was attempting to bring Israel uh, closer to Indonesia. There was already a covert relationship with Israeli intelligence uh, and with the Israeli uh, military, uh, where intelligence uh, uh, equipment uh, and training uh, was given. And Proboa, uh, starting started working uh, in w with uh, Trump and uh, later uh, uh, Biden uh, to attempt to bring the two countries together, similar to what other. Uh, predominantly Muslim countries did under the Abraham Accords. Uh, Proboa met with a senior Israeli uh, security advisor. When this came out, he was forced to retreat uh, from this policy. And at this moment, the Indonesian government and Proboa are posing as if they oppose uh, what Israel is doing. But if he becomes president, there's a very good chance that those relations will, will grow even closer and perhaps be formalized. Alan, finally, uh, the former Supreme Court chief justice, retired now, uh, tweeted out that you should be captured as you give out this information. Are you concerned about your own safety? I think we just lost uh, our connection to Alan. Alan Nairn, longtime investigative journalist, has been covering Indonesia and occupied East Timor for decades. East Timor has since become an independent nation. We'll link to his new piece in The Intercept, Indonesia State Apparatus is Preparing to Throw Election to a Notorious Massacre General. The election is Wednesday, February 14th. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to Gaza, to Israel threatening to launch a ground invasion of Rafah, where over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge. On Monday, President Biden hosted King Abdullah of Jordan at the White House. During public remarks, Biden initially described Israel's operation Rafah as, quote, our operation. Yesterday, our military operation in Rafah, the, the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Jordan's King Abdullah condemned Israel's plan to attack Rafah and called for a ceasefire in the creation of a Palestinian state. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. Seven decades of occupation, death and destruction have proven beyond any doubt that there can be no peace without a political horizon. Military and security solutions are not the answer. They can never bring peace. Civilians on both sides continue to pay for this protracted conflict with their lives. 
We go now to Toronto, where we're joined by Dr. Yasser Khan. He's a Canadian ophthalmologist and eye surgeon who recently returned from a humanitarian surgical mission at the European Hospital in Khan Yunis in Gaza. Uh, Dr. Khan, welcome to Democracy Now! If you can describe what you saw there in Khan Yunis, the level of the injuries, how crowded the European hospital was, the threats people were facing there. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, I, I look at the impending um, invasion of Rafa and uh, the attacks of Rafa, and I know, because I've seen it, I know what's going to happen. I know the casualties, and I know how much worse it's going to get. When I was in Khan Yunus a few weeks ago, it, I've, I've been to over 40 different countries, um, you know, doing humanitarian work, uh, anywhere from in Africa, Asia, and uh, South America. and there, uh, what I saw in Khan Yunus were the most horrific scenes in my entire life, and, and I hope I never see them again. It was, it was just, you know, the bombings were going on every few hours at that point in time. The Israeli forces were about a kilometer away, and the mass casualties kept on coming in. And it was mostly, I mean, the majority of, of the patients that I treated were children, anywhere from the age of 2 to 17. I mean, I saw horrific eye and facial injuries that I've never seen before. Uh, eyes shattered in two six-year-old uh, children with, uh, with shrapnel that I had to take out. Eyes with, with shrapnel stuck inside, uh, facial injuries. I saw orthopedic injuries where, you know, limbs just cut off and dangling. I saw abdominal injuries that were just horrific. And it was just mass chaos. There's children on the floor unattended to, uh, with head trauma, uh, people suturing patients without anesthesia on the ground. It was just mass chaos and really horrific, horrific scenes. And I know that now with the bombing going on in Rafa and scenes of children hanging, exploded, and, you know, half their bodies cut off and hanging on, on a wall because they've been exploded, I mean, those are scenes going on now, so I know exactly what my colleagues are going through right now in, in Rafa and in, in Gaza, basically. And, and doctor, uh, you, you were working shifts of 12 to 13 hour days. Can you talk about the conditions of the medical staff and the doctors you worked alongside with? Uh, where, did you, uh, where did you sleep? How, how, were you able to eat? Can you talk about those conditions you faced? Well, the doctors were amazing. I mean, the Palestinian doctors were amazing. Their dedication and their will to, to resist dying and staying alive was amazing. They're very talented, but they have nothing. There was no antibiotics. Uh, there was no painkillers. On the last day I was leaving, we ran out of morphine, which is very important in a lot of orthopedic injuries. So patients were, I mean, the whole, whole European Gaza hospital was at the time. Now, it's everything I'm seeing and uh, everything I saw is much worse now. But basically, it was overcrowded, about three, four hundred percent over capacity. There was patients and bodies lying all over the hospital floor, inside and outside. They had orthopedic devices coming from their from their legs or their or their arms. Um, they were getting infected. They're in pain because they're on the floor, so the conditions weren't very sterile. And if they survived amputation the first time, the infection would get them because then they, they'd have to be amputated after. A lot of the kids that I saw, and, and more than 60% of the patients I saw were children. They're thin. Um, they had no fat on them. They're starving because, as you know, Israel has had a, um, has had a food blockade. 
since this uh, war on Gaza started. And so they're all thin with no fat, starving, and they're coming in. And, um, you know, it was, it was just, and, and we don't have, we didn't have enough supplies, enough gauze, enough antibiotics, enough instruments even. The instruments are, are rusting to kind of, you know, deal with, with, with the mass trauma. Dr. I Han, stayed in the hospital. Yeah, Dr. So. Han, this is Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland speaking Monday ahead of a vote on the $95 billion aid package to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. Madam President, I want that to sink in. Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime. And that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals. That's Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Dr. Khan, you're talking about the thinness of the children, of the whole population. Yeah, well, you know, Amy, it's, you know, from, from what I saw and what I experienced when I, when, when, when I was on the ground, speaking to officials, uh, speaking to the doctors there, and this whole, um, you know, one of the whole aspects of this war in Gaza you know, the, the genocidal intent of Israeli politicians, um, the Israeli army, has been clear. What is really bizarre is they haven't hit it. They have openly called for it. They have openly called for epidemics. And, and so, as a, as a healthcare professional, the attack on the healthcare system has been unprecedented. I mean, I mean the viciousness of it, the killing machine that Israel has unleashed on, on the healthcare system, I think is is unprecedented. Hospitals have been bombed. Uh, when 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 the doctors have tried to repopulate them, they've been you know sniper fire with drones has has pre- prevented them from going in. They've attacked the sewage system, the water system, so the the sewage mixes with the drinking water, um, and and you get diarrheal diseases, bacterial diseases. You know cholera, typhoid is not not far away. Hepatitis A is epidemic there now. They're living in cramped spaces. They have uh, killed over 300 or 400 healthcare workers, uh, doctors, nurses, paramedics, ambulances have been bombed. This has all been a systematic sort of, you know, um, uh, you know uh, 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 by destroying the healthcare system, you're contributing to the genocide. Uh, what's going on is now there's 15, 10 to 15,000 bodies that are decomposing. So it's raining season right now in Gaza. So all the rainwater uh, mixes with the decomposing bodies and that bacteria mixes with the drinking water supply and you get further disease. They have kidnapped about 40, 45 doctors uh, that have been specifically targeted. They've targeted specifically specialists who are, you know, one-off. So like the one nephrologist in the Gaza Strip was targeted. Um, the pathologist, uh, hospital chiefs and, and directors have all been targeted through drones or, or targeted missile strikes. And, you know, so the whole thing is that if the bombings are not going to get you, then disease will surely get you because they're all malnourished. So as you know, if you're malnourished, your immune system is weaker, so you're more susceptible to disease, but there's no antibiotics. You know, the, the amount of amputations I saw um, you know, in children, for example, uh, both arms, one arm, one leg, both eyes gone. 
you know, both eyes amputated basically out of their um, eye socket. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it takes about, you know, if, if this was done properly in a non-war scenario, uh, you know, one amputation in, in a child, a child will need about 9 to 12 surgeries by the time they're an adult, you know, for prosthetic fitting and whatnot. Now, in this case, first of all, it's a war situation. They've not been done properly. Fair enough, because you have to rush it. But secondly, who's going to take care of these children, um, most, mostly children, because their parents are gone, their uncles are dead, their um, grandfathers and grandmothers are, are dead. And so, you know, the Israeli killing machine has been vicious. I mean, they've used drones. When I was there, I, I was speaking to the doctors who were there, and they told me that they've used drones like the Hellfire drone, that, that is an explosive drone. It fires off these discs once it implodes or explodes. And these discs are very unique and they cause unique amputations. Most amputations occur at the weak points, like, you know, like the elbow or the knee. But they cause you know, mid-thigh, mid-arm amputations, which are much more complicated. And they fire off the shrapnel. And you know, from, from what the doctors are telling me, that you know, what I believe is that they're using weapons on the civilian population that, that have never been used before. Because from, from what I heard, based on my experience, you know, uh, Israel has a very strong defense industry. And buyers like weapons that are battle-tested. So if you can put a label to a new weapon that's battle-tested, that increases the value of it. And they're experimenting with these weapons from, from what I've heard and from what I saw um, in a civilian dense population. So it's just... Um, it's, it's been vicious, really, really vicious. Dr. Yasser Khan, I want to thank you for being with us. Canadian ophthalmologist, eye surgeon based in Toronto, Canada, just recently returned from a humanitarian surgical mission at the European Hospital of Khan Yunus in Gaza. When we come back, we'll be joined by climate scientist Michael Mann, just awarded a million dollars in a defamation lawsuit against two right-wing critics back in 20 seconds. It's still today by Hallelujah Chicken Run Band. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to the climate crisis. Dozens were arrested Monday outside President Biden's campaign headquarters in Delaware as members of Sunrise Movement called on him to declare a climate emergency. Some held signs that read, Fund Climate, Not Genocide. This comes as world-renowned climate scientist Michael Mann has been awarded more than a million dollars in a defamation lawsuit settled last week. 
Mann initially filed the case in 2012 against two right-wing critics. Rand Simberg, then with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, wrote that, quote, Mann could be said to be the Jerry Sandusky of climate science, except for instead of molesting children, he's molested and tortured data, unquote. Of course, Sandusky's the convicted child molester and former football coach at Penn State University, where Mann was a professor at the time. Mark Stein, a contributor to National Review, cited Simberg and called Mann's research, quote, fraudulent. Dr. Mann said he hopes the unanimous verdict in his defamation case against the two makes it clear that falsely attacking climate scientists is not protected speech. He's joining us now from Philadelphia, where he's the presidential distinguished professor of earth and environmental science at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Mann, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, can you explain what just happened in this major victory being awarded a million dollars by a Washington, D.C. jury after suing these two right wing climate deniers. Yeah, thanks, Amy. It's good to be with you. Um, you know, as you quoted me before, um, this is a line in the sand. It's one thing to disagree with the findings of scientists. Um, you know, people have the right to do that. Uh, it's one thing to criticize scientists. And uh, within the scientific community, um, good faith, criticism, skepticism is a good thing. But What's not allowed, what you can't do, is make false allegations about scientists in an effort, uh, of course, to promote uh, an agenda, an agenda in this case of climate change denialism. Um, and this is something that we've encountered for decades, efforts by the fossil fuel industry and their hired guns to attack and attempt to discredit scientists uh, to prevent meaningful action on climate. And so this is a line in the sand, and I think it goes beyond climate science. I think it also applies to other areas, uh, public health science. Uh, today we see uh, bad faith attacks on you know, public health scientists like uh, Anthony Fauci, um, my good friend Peter Hotez. Uh, that is not protected speech. You can't engage in false and defamatory attacks on scientists. And so I like to think that this will create some space now, that scientists will feel uh, more uh, comfortable in leaving the laboratory uh, and speaking to the public and policymakers uh, about their science and about the implications of their science, knowing that there are some basic protections. And I, I wanted to ask you, in your conversations with fellow scientists, uh, what is the, uh, the the mood or the sense of how these attacks are affecting their ability to do their work? Well, you know, um, especially young scientists, what I fear is young scientists see these very visible attacks, um, uh, these denunciations of, uh, of, of uh, their fellow scientists in the public sphere. And that sort of chills the public discourse. Um, uh, it, it makes them basically afraid um, to, to speak out and, and to speak up. And so I, I do think that uh, these attacks have had a chilling effect. And that was their intended impact. Of course, the climate change disinformation machine has used vilification um, as a way to intimidate scientists um, to, uh, again, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, to to create fear 
that um, that they'll be attacked if, if they speak out about the implications of their science. Uh, that's been going on for far too long. It's now infected our entire body politic, where today uh, misinformation and disinformation runs rampant. Um, and when it comes to the great challenges we face, whether it be climate change or the public health threat of pandemics like COVID-19, it is absolutely essential that scientists uh, feel free to speak uh, to the public and to policymakers about these mounting threats. And I hope, once again, that this decision will create a little bit more space now for my fellow scientists to do that. And do you see your case setting precedent for political leaders who attack climate science—to uh, attack climate science? And how badly were you injured? I mean, this horror of comparing you to this known molester who destroyed so many young men's lives at, at uh, Penn State. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, I was certainly there was a, an emotional toll uh, that it took uh, on me for certain. Um, you know, it, it it didn't prevent me from speaking out uh, about uh, the climate crisis. I have embraced uh, that opportunity. Uh, my recent book, uh, Our Fragile Moment, um, is my latest attempt to communicate the, the threat of climate change to the public and to policy. I've been able to do that. But um, but at the same time, it's taken an emotional toll um, and uh, once again has sort uh, sort of created this chilling effect where other scientists seeing me attacked in this way have probably backed off um, and have shied away from the spotlight. Um, And we all pay the price when scientists don't feel Um, empowered to speak out about the implications of their science. I want to bring into this conversation Mark Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now and the environment correspondent for The Nation, where his new piece is headlined, It's the 2024 election season. Where's the climate story? Welcome back, Mark, to Democracy Now! Lay out what you're calling for in this election year 2024. Thanks, Amy. And I have to say that the comments that Michael Mann is making right now about how the climate denialism has uh, intimidated scientists into not speaking about their findings, that has happened exactly the same way within our profession of the news media. For too many years, many of our colleagues in the media have been intimidated by these right-wing attacks and have come to think that, well, I don't really understand climate science. I guess I better not talk about it. And uh, you see that now in... uh, Uh, the election, 2024 election, uh, which is that uh, there's a lot of coverage, obviously, about the campaigns, especially here in the United States at the presidential level, but very little connection of the fact that uh, these elections are essentially going to shape humanity's climate future. Uh, And not just in the United States, about half of the world's population is entitled to vote in various elections around the world. We just heard Alan Nairn's report from Indonesia. Very important election there. India is coming up, European Union, U.S., South Africa, Mexico. These elections are going to decide which governments are in power or not in power over this next critical five-year period when we absolutely have got to bend the uh, climate pollution trajectory down if we're going to uh, preserve a livable planet on this future. So these elections could not be more important from a climate perspective. And yet a lot of the media 
is uh, still not making that connection. And I can tell you that part of the reason is a fear on their part. I just had this conversation the other day with a very prominent journalist, uh, fear that we will look partisan if we point out, for example, that here in the United States, one of the major political parties is still essentially denying climate change. That's the Republicans, of course. And Donald Trump, who has pledged to drill baby drill from the first day back if he were to be a return to the White House. Uh, it's not our job as journalists to censor ourselves because one party or one candidate decides that they're going to deny climate science. We owe it to the public to report that to the public without fear or favor. And, uh, and I wanted to ask you, Mark, in terms of how the Democratic Party has been handling the issue of, uh, of uh, climate change during this election season, because there couldn't be a more stark difference between the, uh, the two candidates in terms of, of climate science, at least in terms of their acknowledgement uh, of the crisis that we're facing. Right. Uh, but is, is the Democratic Party really pushing forth as, as strongly as it could on this issue? You know, Juan, I think it's hard to know I, I, because so much of what we in the public hear about from the Democratic Party or from the White House is filtered again through the prism of the news media. And, uh, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, certainly the biggest uh, climate legislation ever passed, probably in the world, certainly here in the United States, and passed, by the way, by a Democratic president through a Congress that is still has a lot of Republican control in it. Um, the White House has been very frustrated that, that the general public does not know about that. And the White House has tried and tried, it says, to put Biden on the road to talk about this. And it's not getting the kind of press coverage that uh, at least I would have expected. So I think that there's, you're certainly right that there is a huge contrast between a Democratic uh, and a Republican approach to this. Is Biden's climate record perfect? Far from it. Uh, the U.S. is still now the biggest oil and gas producer in the world. You know, he green-lighted the, the Willow Project, oil project up in Alaska. But he just put a pause on uh, liquid natural gas export facilities across the Gulf Coast. So as voters, um, I think it's very important for people who are out there as citizens to remember that, to quote uh, my colleague Rebecca Solnit, when you're thinking about your vote, your vote is not a valentine, with all due respect to valentines tomorrow. Your vote's not a valentine. It's a chess move. You don't have to approve of everything a certain candidate does in order to say, I'm still going to vote. If you care about climate, vote. If you care about fairness, vote. If you care about peace, vote. Uh, this week, Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez marked the five-year anniversary of the introduction of the Green New Deal. We are going to go and we have to go to every single frontline community and ensure that they are not left behind. We're going to create millions of unionized jobs across the United States of America. We are going to revamp our transmission lines, install solar, commit to geothermal, and we are going to transition this country to clean and renewable energy and create a, a, a sustainable working class in the process of doing it. Mark Hertzgard, we just have 30 seconds. Uh, but again, that's AOC celebrating now five years since Green New Deal was introduced. And that Green New Deal is what gave us the Inflation Reduction Act, somewhat uh, trimmed down from the original vision of the Green New Deal. But that's where, again, elections are important. AOC ran, took on a moderate uh, Democrat who everybody said was unbeatable. She beat him. 
and injected all of this new energy and great ideas into the American political discourse like the Green New Deal. And I think that's exactly why we in the press have to be paying much more attention to the climate issue here in 2024. As the Northeast is shut down what, by what is expected to be a monster storm, it just recently started snowing here in the city. The schools are closed from here to Boston. Mark Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now, will link to your new article in The Nation. It's the 2024 election season. Where's the climate story? And thanks so much to Michael Mann, professor of Earth and Environmental Science at University of Pennsylvania, just awarded $1 million in a defamation lawsuit. Happy birthday to Brendan Allen. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.